Hi, this is Ben Zorns with LSU Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, The Voice of a Lion. We're told in Scripture that the voice of God is like the sound of a mighty, rushing river. And for some reason, when God grips a man, He takes a guy who is once only able to produce a whimpering whisper and turns him into a thundering yet weeping prophet of the truth of the glorious gospel of Christ. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This particular message wasn't intended. It's a byproduct of a lot of laughter in and amongst our staff and in and amongst Leslie and myself when it came to the issue of how many emails uh, come in and, and also how many comments I get of well-meaning people that think they're helping me along after I speak. And they said, I don't think you realize that you talk really loud. <laughs> Thank you. I, I do know. I do know. Uh, and there's this one lady that was interested in coming to Ellerslie, and she said, but I don't know that I could handle uh, the screaming. Well, just so you know, what you just heard tonight is nothing compared to Ellerslie. I don't particularly like the description screaming. I don't scream. I talk with force. Okay, let's make sure we pick our terms correctly. It's like when uh, the well-meaning ladies would call me skinny. It's like, please, do not call a guy skinny. That might sound good to a girl. It doesn't sound good to a guy. Okay? I'm slender. Slenderly built. How about this? Muscular, but it's unseen muscle. In other words, there's better ways of articulating things. So Leslie was going through her audio Bible, and she's always listening to it. And she came to me the other day, and she said, uh, you know what? I think you could make a very strong case. Uh, for, and this was a joke, okay? We were laughing about it. But she said, you should just build a strong case for when someone comes to you and says you shouldn't speak loudly. Uh, and so we were laughing, and she gave me a couple of the scriptures that she just heard. And so it was enough of a fascination where I did a quick uh, study. And I know the Bible fairly well to know God's voice. In other words, it's not that I'm unfamiliar, but I'd never done a formal study on the voice of God. So what you have is sort of the outflow of a very funny study. Okay, What started out with humor is going to become dead serious to all of us in here because this is one serious message. However... There is an element of humor in it, and, but the humor is only felt by us in the body that appreciate the growl of God. The Voice of the Lion. I really like the title, by the way. Listen to this scripture in Hosea. They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, the children, then the children shall tremble. Who does God esteem? Who does God hold with a cherishing delight? But those who are broken, who are contrite, and listen, who tremble at his word. They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble. You know what the Bible is the roar of a lion? 
The Bible is the word of God enunciated. And as I sort of build this case today, you're going to realize that the Bible is the enunciation of God's heart, his mind, his nature. And it is, in fact, the roar of a lion. The short list of nevers. Now, some of you at Ellerslie know this, but I think it's important in the context of this message because what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a certain amount of understanding of some of the things I've walked through in apprehending what we're going to talk about today. Because this is a very deep message for me. It's very personal and intimate, and I would have never dreamed of putting it together into a message. And yet somehow this like just was driven to the surface in and through this study and this preparation. I had a different message. In fact, I was telling Sandy that I deleted 23 pages out of this message yesterday afternoon. And this is a repackaging of the message entirely. This wasn't originally in it. But the short list of nevers. There are certain things that we, we pop out of the spiritual womb, even before that. Okay, let's, before we even recognize truly what it means to be reborn, what it means to be the twice born. What, we're in, living in the flesh, we're living in self, and we don't even understand a new life, but we see Christianity. We're, we're seeing it and we're seeing what it does to people. You know, I saw what it did to you know, my sister. She was so serious about Jesus. And I mocked her. I was a Christian, quote unquote. I went to church. You know, isn't that what a Christian is? You know, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. Sure, you know, I had fire insurance. But there were certain things that I proclaimed in my life. And many of us have done this. You'll never get me doing that. And so this is the way I would enunciate it. I'll never be a teacher. If you ask me why. Teachers are pretty low on the totem pole of life, okay? They don't get paid much. That's the proof right there. Because if they were important, they'd be paid more. They can't be valued very much in this society. They're not that important. I'll never be a teacher. I'm going to do that. I'll never be a missionary. Be one of those wacko people that leaves all the normal things of life and goes and just sort of ruins your life somewhere else. It's like, no way am I going to live in some huts with bugs crawling all over me. I'll never be a pastor. Okay, now, you can see the humor in this now, but I want you to realize, I love what I do. I cherish my life. I honestly feel that I have the best life on planet Earth, and that isn't an exaggeration. I honestly feel it. You give me anyone in this world today and say, Eric, would you switch places with them? Not on your life would I give up my life, my calling. My, my wife, my kids, you guys. No way! I have it good! And yet, from my previous disposition, my firstborn disposition, before I was twice born, I couldn't see any beauty in what I now do. I would have held Eric Ludy in contempt, disdained him. I do not want to turn out like that guy. So... I want you to realize I look at this message from two angles. I actually know what I would have thought of Eric Ludy. And yet I also know what it's like on the other side of the fence after crossing over. And I look back at a young Eric Ludy and I say, he's ignorant. He doesn't understand. Father, forgive him. He knows not what he's doing. He doesn't see what he's despising. He doesn't recognize that he's despising the pleasant land. He's despising the gift of God. He's despising and rejecting his birthright. God, show mercy on little Eric Lodi. 
The 22-year-old Eric adds an additional never to the list. Now I come out of the spiritual birth canal. I am born again. There is a newness of life in Eric Ludi. And at that newness of life, if you are not discipled from the beginning to understand that it means everything to follow Jesus. Everything. You don't hold on to a scrap of your life. Christ purchased it with his blood. If you are not discipled in this, then what you end up with is a funky version of Christianity, which is half you, half God. It's just like you have God when you need him, but the rest of life is you. And so Eric was a hybrid in the very beginning. I didn't know. I wasn't discipled. No one told me. I would read Tozier and feel convicted, but I didn't understand. I didn't have someone walking me through what it meant to lay down my life and to yield this body over to its rightful master. And so I added another never to the list. And this became what we could term my fourth never. I'll never be a prophet. I remember going to conferences where they would be talking about like spiritual gifts and things. And they would bring up the prophet. He had a long bony finger. He shouted. He always was speaking what no one wanted to hear. He was isolated. He looked funny. He wore funny clothes. He ate funny food. Yeah. I'll be a Christian, okay? But I'm not going to be one of those kind of Christians. I want people to actually like me. I didn't say it that way. Here's how I would say it. You see, I'm going to woo people to Jesus because they like me. And then I'll say, but I, and I like Jesus. And that will be the passageway. Well, so if, I, if they like me, then they would obviously like the one that I love or like. And so it was a justification for why I could never become any more radical than I was. God has always had this radical push behind my life. Just sort of like this shove in the back. I'm like, why don't you shove someone else, God? I don't want to be the one walking out. Why the, God, I, and all these other people are just fine. All around me, and I have the push in my back. And I remember my mom saying, Eric, I just think that you're more like a prophet. I am not a prophet. I refuse to accept that. First of all, I'm a nice guy. Prophets are mean. I am not going to be a prophet. I love people. Prophets don't like people. See, these are my assumptions based on long bony fingers and loud voices. You see, long bony fingers and loud voices are interpreted from the firstborn as being meanness. As being hostility, when in actuality it's a plea of the depths of love. When God roars like a lion, it's not because he canceled out his love or unplugged his love for a moment and then started shouting. He is love! And he's plugged into love the whole time! I'll never be a prophet. Quote, unquote, young Eric Ludy. Christianity and social sensitivity, groomed in the unspoken rules of propriety, I grew up in this culture. I'm guessing most of you in here did as well. And if you didn't, it's a culture probably fairly similar. But we know what we're not supposed to say. And we know what we're supposed to say. Now, some people can be groomed in this culture and just not get it. And they're just politically incorrect. And it's, it's sort of like a screw has just been loose. Something never got tightened down. And so the rest of us are like, Eesh. no, 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 no. You don't say that. Okay, but the rest of us, we don't need to be taught what not to say. We just know what not to say. 
Sometimes it's you accidentally do it when you're a little child and someone's standing in front of you in line and you say something about them and your mom goes, <gasps> and you go, oh, I guess I'm not supposed to say things like that. Okay, and you learn. We learn these things. But there's a social propriety and we know what not to say and we know what is supposed to be said. There's, a, there's lines out there that if you say them, people applaud you. If you wear a pink ribbon, people applaud you. You know, that's why every company out there sticks a pink ribbon on their product. They know that people go, oh, that's appropriate. That's a good product. If they're going to stick a pink ribbon on there, I'll buy from them. It's called political correctness. When you put the badge of God upon your life, I just want to prepare you. You are always, without a doubt, in every generation, politically incorrect. It's not a purposeful thing. Like you just wake up one morning and go, you know what? I just feel like being politically incorrect. You know that Eric never once just decided to be politically incorrect? I was groomed in the same culture you were. It's not like I just popped out of the womb and I was like, I'm just incorrect. I had to choose to obey God. And I felt that pressure of society around me. It was, it was a pressure cooker to say, Eric, stop. Stop. Do not say that. I would be trembling. I can tell you so many moments in my life when I would get up trembling. And I would start saying something. My voice would crack. And it could be perceived as weakness. I didn't look too impressive when I was doing it. I remember the very first inaugural moment when I got up to speak in front of a crowd of, I don't know, five to 800 people. Monroe, Louisiana. I was on a team of missionaries. And I was talking in the bus on the way there. Everyone was talking about their future, you know, marriage and all this and what they were looking for in a spouse and how they wanted a date and all these things. And someone looked at me and they said, what about you, Ludi? It's all awkward. I'm thinking I'm not about to say what I'm thinking because God was doing an intimate work inside of me. Somehow they pressured me. I said something like, you know, I'm, I love my wife even now. Something like that. How can you love your wife? You don't even know her. Well, because I feel like God is preparing me for one. I'm not just going out looking for someone. I'm going to wait. And when God brings that person to my life, it's the person that I've been setting my life aside for. Okay, just if those of you that hung around Eric and Leslie, it's just classic stuff. However, in that day and age, it was not classic stuff. And when I said I'm waiting for my future wife, I'm waiting for God to write my story, to realize this was incredulity on the faces around me. But it got passed along to the leader. You know, that Eric, uh, you know, has some story. You know, Eric thinks weird in the arena of purity. However, it was really funny because this group that we came into, we're a missionary group traveling around the country. We stopped in Monroe, Louisiana, and the leaders of this uh, Monroe, Louisiana youth thing say, do you have anyone in your group that could speak on purity tonight? And the leader just happened to hear that Eric has some thoughts on purity. They weren't the approved thoughts by the rest of the team. It's like, yeah, I got a guy. So I suddenly get 20 minutes warning. Eric, I need you to speak on purity tonight. What? How did this happen? I remember knowing exactly what I needed to share the moment I was asked. I'm just a young guy at this time. This is the young Eric Ludi. But I knew what I needed to share. And I knew it would not be received. And I was literally, I was sitting like in the second row, trembling. And I remember dealing with God. It's like, God, I can't do that. God, I can't do that. God, don't make me do this. Don't make me. Please, please, could you give me a choice? 
And I knew I didn't have a choice. Obedience was my choice. And I remember literally seconds before I was supposed to get up, I said, all right. And even if they all reject me, even if they don't receive it, I do it for you, Lord Jesus. But please help me. I remember coming up onto that stage and beginning to speak. And I didn't stammered, I was choking, it wasn't articulate. My message was very simple. God isn't just interested in physical virginity. He's interested in spiritual virginity. If you have thoughts in your mind and in your heart, and if you are doing things inside your thought life and inside your inner man, that is a defilement of your soul. And you must get right with God. We have to live as God intended us to live, and that is pure from the inside out. I don't know how it came out. All I remember is I was trembling. It was quiet. It wasn't a shout. Believe me. I felt insecure. I felt, I mean, total odd man out. Not one whisper. No amens from the crowd. Everyone's staring at me like, who are you? I was trembling and gave the mic. No one clapped. And I sat down. The man that followed me, the leader, gets up and he says, <laughs> uh, Well, I'm not here to preach holiness. After Eric spoke his first time in obedience to God, I was completely undermined right after I did. My team confronted me and said I needed to ask forgiveness from every person on that team because I'd brought condemnation to them and everyone felt guilty. This is my beginnings. I'm not going to be a prophet. I'm not going to be a prophet. No, I'm not going to be a prophet. The school of the popular. Eric Ludy, fifth grade. Wear the right clothing. There's clothing you're supposed to wear. Every single one of us know it when we're in school. My mom took me to Sears, and there was this brand of jeans called Tough Skins. They are the most ridiculous kind of gene in the history of the world. Who invented these things? It wasn't a cool mom, I'll tell you that. The pa- they had a patch. You don't wear patches on your jeans. They had a patch and it was under the kneecap. What's the good of a patch under the kneecap? And you could see it. And they were funny looking. Everyone else that had any type of sense of style wore Levi's. Every other one. Oh, also, you wore your collar up. You had to have an IZOD. I don't know if any of you were, in the, were born in 1970. You'd know this. IZOD. Okay? There was even a certain kind of shoe you wore. And it was a blue, it was a canvas, uh, baby blue striped Nike shoe. Everyone had them. I had to have them. If you're going to fit in, there's a way to be popular. But if you wear the wrong things, you know that's the surest way to be left out is to wear the wrong clothing. We, we know this. It's intrinsic within us as young people. There's a pressure upon us. Show the right food in your lunchbox. Every cool kid had a Capri Sun. I'm dead serious. And my mom said Capri Sun had too much sugar in it. My mom stuck big, thick, homemade brown bread in my lunch. Every cool kid had Wonder Bread. You had to hail from the right neighborhood. You know that there was two neighborhoods that went to my school. You had the Knolls and you had the Cherry Knolls. I don't know what it was about the Cherry, 
But the Cherry Knolls had the cool kids. And guess where I hailed from? The Knolls! How come I don't have the Cherry? Why? I, oh, all the cool kids are from Cherry Knolls. Could we move to the Cherry Knolls? Speak the right jargon. There's cool words. And there's words that if you are in the flow of what is popular, you know them. You know what the cool word was when I was in the fifth grade? Choice. That's choice. Okay, it might sound funny now, but that was cool then. Okay, that was the way you spoke. And I remember my dad, it was one Halloween. And this is the days when we had no idea that Halloween probably is not the best thing to be uh, hanging around with. But I was dressed up as Groucho Marx. And uh, my dad came into the room. And he was trying to fit in with his sons, you know. So he's like bouncing up on his toes. He's like, that's choice. That's choice. I'm like, Dad, no, no, no. Don't even try that, okay? There's a difference between the school of the popular and the school of the prophet. The clothing, a garment woven of camel's hair attached to the body by a leathern girdle. His lunchbox, locust and wild honey. His neighborhood, the waste howling wilderness. His jargon, repent. No way am I going to be that kid in school. I want to go to the school of the popular God. I don't want to go to the school of the prophet. That shove in my back has been there ever since I became twice born. And I don't know if you have a shove in your back. I don't know if I'm just one of those guys that happened to say, oh, I'm not supposed to listen, that I'm supposed to listen to the shove in my back. And the rest of you are like, you don't have to listen to that shove. I've had that shove my whole life and never done anything about it. Eric, you just keep following the shove. That's why you're getting so weird. I don't know. I don't know how other people feel their spiritual life and the pushes of God. All I know is what's happened to me. And I know that God is constantly pressing me forward into un unkind territory, unpleasant grounds. Do you know that I know exactly what I'm doing when I'm speaking up here? And when I say things and you cringe, you go, I don't know that he's supposed, that he even knows he's not supposed to say that. There is only one way to the Father, and it's Jesus Christ. Only one. That means that Islam is wrong. Mormonism, wrong. There is only one way to the Father. I'm not supposed to say that today. And I know it. But you'll notice, I'm also getting sort of comfortable in saying what I'm not supposed to be saying. What's happened to me? What's taken place? I've gone to a school. It's called the School of the Prophet. I don't call myself a prophet. It's not some reference to myself. Every single one of us is meant to go through this school. Because what this school does is it says, okay, you know what is popular in this world, but are you willing? Are you willing to wear a clothing and to don an outfit that this world will hold in contempt. And I don't just mean physical clothing. I mean a behavior, a position in this earth. We want to fit in. We want to have a constituency that will vote us into office. We don't want to get on the wrong side of culture. Don't you know what Christianity is? Christianity is at enmity with the world. Didn't anyone tell you that when you became a Christian? Probably not. Sorry to have to be the one to break the news to you. But it's not bad news. It's actually part of the good news. Because the world is going to hell. 
Why would you want to be groomed and associated with that? You want to be separate from it. You want to be with Jesus. And we can invite them to join us. But there's only one way. Jesus Christ. Our lunchbox. Are we willing to have our food be something that this world would detest? You know that the Christian eats a different food? I know we go to the same grocery stores. But I'm saying we must eat the bread of life. Drink the living water. We go to a different source for our sustenance. And the world doesn't understand that. And where we come from, the waste, talent, wilderness, the world looks around just like Jesus came out of Nazareth. Jesus is the ultimate picture of what we are called to be. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of the knolls. And who in the right mind wants to switch out choice for repent? How popular do you think I'm going to be in the fifth grade? If I come to school and stand on the play- playground, stand up on one of the, you know, uh, play equipment things and go, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand! <laughs> Wouldn't go over too well. We all know it. The rules of the modern Christian game. We're known today as the church of love. And by the way, I think we should be the church of love. However, love has been redefined. When you see the hypocrisy, we are trained in our church today... To not point it out. So let me read this. When you see the hypocrisy, don't point it out because it's in you too. Yeah, yeah, you'll see hypocrisy, but hey, you're a hypocrite too. So don't point it out. That's not being loving. Well, Jesus gives us a better option for that. It is first take the plank out of your eyes so that you can see clearly to help someone else. We are supposed to be plankless. So that we can see and help the hypocrisy around us. As opposed to just shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, I love you. Therefore, I will not call out hypocrisy around me. We have way too much of it and we all know it. Give your audience what they want. And in the process, attempt to stick in a little of what they need. Our goal as modern Christians is to give what people want. Because it's better that they're in church than out there. At least they're in church. And so in the process of giving them what they want, we can give them a little of what they need. When you parent that way, you have a disaster. You don't give children what they want. You give them what they need. Now, it doesn't mean that your children need to be miserable any more than the church of Jesus Christ needs to be miserable. In fact, I think we're the happiest church around. And yet what we do here is give what is needed, not what is wanted. If we all came in here and voted on what we wanted a message to be, can we make me feel good about myself? Could you tell me that everything's just going to be easy in my life? I'm not going to tell you that. What a lie that would be. Never correct, never discipline, never remove, and certainly never separate. If you want to last in this business, says the modern Christian system, you must major on the mercy and kindness side of Jesus and attempt to distance yourself from his uncouth holiness and purity side. And never even think of preaching authoritatively at your audience. I know it. You see, when, we were, when this began to form within me and that nudge was being pressed forward, one of the statements in the publishing world, for instance, when you write books, one of the statements that an editor will look for or that they will use and what they're looking for is the preachy voice. If you preach in your book, if you speak as if you know something that others don't know, if you speak authoritatively as if something's correct and something else is wrong, they will edit it out of a book. This is the modern Christian system, by the way. You are not allowed to preach. It's called preachiness. It's basically a concept of spiritual arrogance. It's not what it is, but that's what it's been tied to. 
You're not allowed to do it. Ludi, the communications coach, a.k.a. the love instructor. Let's go back in time. Eric Ludi has come a long way. I don't like calling myself the love instructor, but follow my history. What did Eric speak on for years? Relationships, romance, okay? I was the big softy. I was the guy who was the poet, and the girls could say, you know what, we need more poets in our men. And what God has been doing, see, I was, I was always on the opposite side from that wild-eyed, mangy-haired, camel, uh, whatever was it, camel-threaded? I forgot how it said, leathern-girdled prophet. It's like, no, 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 I'm not him, even though my mom would say, I think you're a prophet, Eric. No, I'm not! I'm a poet! I'm a poet, not a prophet. Try and make myself cry, and I couldn't, you know, just to prove that I was the poet. <laughs> I taught advanced communications and very powerful education system, an education model that I taught people how to speak, how to present. I want to give you a couple of my themes. These are not that they're not true, but I want you to realize this is what I taught for years. Just get inside their skin, guys. Understand their world and reach them at the point of felt need. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a good principle. I still would teach that to you. However, we're not reaching them at what they feel they need. We're not asking them, could you vote and tell me what you think you need? We as the gospel tears of Jesus Christ need to know what they need. We go to the word of God and he says they need this, but they don't think they need that. Well, that doesn't mean you cater to them, you cater to me. I know what they need. They're blinded. They're deceived. They don't understand that they're lost. You don't ask a lost person for directions. You don't ask them to tell you how it all works. You go to the creator and you ask him and he instructs you. And then you bring that. Don't ever speak from the vantage point of knowing more than your audience. Could you imagine Eric Ludi? Taught, taught this, but always humbly posture yourself beneath them in delivery, which, by the way, I think is a very truth, a very important truth, and that is you are a servant to your audience. No matter what it is, even if you have an understanding that they need, you're a servant. I still agree with this. As if you are not sure, but listen to this part. But you always hum- humbly posture yourself beneath them in delivery as if you are not sure, but learning and just merely sharing your views on the matter. You had to realize every time I stood up and acted sure, and made a concrete statement, I had the world turn against me. And so if I'm going to teach people to be effective communicators, that's not it. Okay? What you you want is an applause at the end. That's what an effective communicator is. Standing ovation. Not everyone being silent and squirming in their seat. It's not effective, is it? Don't be dis- never be distasteful in your manner. Remove the buck teeth in your delivery. Cover up the acne in your address. And use the mouthwash and deodorant to cover up the more unpleasant odor that may attempt to rear its ugly head during your speech. You have issues as a communicator. Ums, likes, you knows. Get them out. Get the buck teeth out. But see, look at the principle. Don't do anything that would cause your audience to look at you in disgust and go, that's inappropriate. That's socially unpresentable. You know that I violate all of these things now? I taught that to advanced communicators. And now I don't purposely violate it, but I violate it knowingly. 
I know a lot about communication that I do not implement. I know how to woo and, and manipulate and impact people. I know how politicians communicate, and I know why they do what they do. I've studied this at a great degree of depth, and I don't use any of it. I don't want to manipulate. I want to speak truth. I want to speak authentically the word of God. In summary, wear the clothing they would respect, eat the food they would esteem, come from the neighborhood they would find respectable, and speak the language that they would deem socially appropriate. If you want to be an effective communicator, if you want to be voted into office, don't pull a John the Baptist. Don't do that! My trouble with Luther. Now, I'm a student of Christian history. I taught Christian history. I'm really struggling because, remember, I'm the poet. And there's this Christian history before us, which is really hard to reckon with when you're just trying to be the poet. Because in Christian history, the men and the women that moved things forward, that moved us away from deception and error towards truth, to break away and, and to scrape off the barnacles of lies off of the heritage and the, and the tradition of the church, they were not necessarily the most easy to look at and to hear and to listen to. They said things that graded their culture. Many of them were killed because of it. And so I would look at Martin Luther and I would say things like, you know what, I appreciate what Martin Luther did. I just have a hunch she could have done it a lot better. Okay, his attitude and his demeanor and his disposition and his manner, <laughs> it doesn't fit in with my communications model. Let me just tell you that, okay? I had a trouble with Luther. I, I liked what he did, but I, I'm not necessarily a fan of how he did it. So this is my sensibilities. Remember, I have sensibilities just like you do. And I am looking at something in history, and I'm wanting to correct it and edit it to my tastes. And I remember the key moment in my life when God began to push me and saying, would you allow me to form Luther inside of you? How do you think I would respond to that? Uh, no. I, I can't do that, God. I can't. God, I'm effective in what I'm doing right now. You know that Leslie and I used to travel around the world and speak to thousands and they loved it and i was speaking a truth that no one even wanted to hear but the way i spoke it was such that it would inspire them and they would be crying and saying i want that it worked why would i change that i had something that worked i could teach others to do it too shove in the back eric i'm looking for something in this generation but I need you to go through the school of the prophet to get it. I, I just... This was a major wrestling match. Look at what Luther himself says about himself. I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike. I am born to fight against innumerable monsters and devils. I must remove stumps and stones, cut away thistles and thorns, and clear the wild forests. No, thank you. I don't want that. However, for those of you that are near me, you'll realize it's probably hard to even imagine that I had a, such a disdain for that. Because now I'm looking at that quote, and I'm thinking that same quote used to disturb me deeply. He's utterly warlike. I just, that's not right. 
Well, the making of a messenger. Five key lessons in the school of the leathern girdle. I don't like the word girdle, but just to throw it in to make us feel all the more uncomfortable with it. This is the making of a messenger. And what we're talking about is the five key lessons in the school. And I start with this. You see, the messenger of messengers. Who is he? Jesus Christ. You know that he is the pattern? He is the delivery mechanism. And he's the fulfillment of it. And do you know that in the beginning, when the world was even being shaped, it was shaped by him through his voice. Through him speaking, if you will. He is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Speaking of Jesus, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was the creator. And yet, he created this whole world, and then he enters into it as a character. And what I was originally going to teach you today was I was going to show you Jesus in the Old Testament. But not the hints of Jesus, not the foreshadows of Jesus coming, but Jesus. That he's a character from the very beginning in creation all the way through because he's known as the word of the Lord or the word of God. And it literally is a, the word of God has personal attribute, human attribute, and he comes unto men and speaks to them. He's a character all throughout the Old Testament. Well, I thought there was a scripture in here. I must be at a different spot. So here's the first lesson. Number one, we must be, or a messenger must be ordered and built in the word. Now, most of us understand when we talk about being in the word. That means you're digging and studying the Bible. I want you to realize that the truest definition of being in the word is being in Jesus Christ, who is the word. Okay, now it does mean being in the scriptures, the text. Because if you're in the text of scriptures, you're going to, it's going to lead you into the word. Okay, so that is a truth, but you must be ordered and built in the word. And this is, this is the picture of Jesus Christ himself. Order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. You see, when you are in the word, and we know this in the new covenant understanding of the gospel, that when you are in Christ, sin no longer has dominion over you. That's, that's Romans 6. Here we have Romans 6 in the Old Testament. Order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. The messenger of the gospel, the messenger of the word, must be planted and ordered and built in the word. The word of God must be everything to them. What is a prophet but one who is a messenger of the word of God? The word of God came to them. They ate a roll. They ate a scroll. They had the word of God literally enter into them. They are in the word. And as a result, the word enters into them and they speak forth that which is of God. The prophet is merely a messenger of the truth. And are there just special people that are prophets? Well, maybe you could have an argument over that. It's not what my message is about. I say every single one of us is called to be a messenger of the gospel. Every single one of us. Second lesson. The messenger must be trained through suffering. What kind of school is this? Now, the first one sounds fairly, you know, nice. You know, you just need to be in the Word and, you know, have you be constructed afterward. Even though I want you to know, when you understand what the Word says, that's not too comfortable. Because the Word of God will correct you at every turn. It says, no, walls need to be square. No, it needs to be measured off to this distance. And you're like, what? Boy, this is picky. 
If you're going to be built in the world, word, that's how iniquity or sin will not have dominion over you. God says, this is how you must be built for your life to succeed. And then the messenger must be trained through suffering. The word himself, the great messenger of messengers, when he came, is exactly what he went through. Though he were a son, speaking of Jesus, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. A prophet must learn to obey. What good is a prophet if he won't obey? Because a prophet doesn't just obey when things are easy. A prophet has to be made ready to speak the words to a king who may cut off his head when he speaks it. And usually, if you'll notice in the Bible, when a prophet is moved to speak, it's not the words the king wants to hear. It's the, it's the words the king must hear to save Israel. The messenger must be thoroughly purified. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. If something is going to come out of you as a messenger, those words that come out of you must be purified words. They cannot be fleshly words, words of your own creation, or even God's words given to you, but then wielded with flesh and angst and irritation and frustration. Some of you that are being discipled here at Ellerslie, You're getting the word of the Lord, but then you want to take that word and hammer it onto someone's head back home. That person that really hurt you, and they need to know that they were wrong. They've been living a false life. That isn't what we do with it. The words must be purified seven times over within us. So when they come out, they are God's words, not our words. They're his words. The messenger must embrace foolishness. Foolishness is God's method, whether we like it or not. We like hipness. We like coolness. We like things to look vogue, correct to the world. world. There's a rightness, and we esteem it. And God says, you're esteeming the wrong thing. And as a result, you're going to stumble over me. Because God's ways are foolishness. And so when we are being trained in the school of the prophet, one of the things we begin to esteem is God's sense of humor. I see what you're doing, God. You're actually coming to this earth in foolishness. And that's how you do your work. And when I represent you, even though I'm not too happy about this, I become a fool. And your messenger looks foolish. They wear a leathern girdle. They eat locust and wild honey. And they come out of the waste town wilderness. And they say things that don't sound right and correct to the world. Uh-huh. Christ crucified. It's known as a stumbling block or foolishness. The gospel. It's called the foolishness of God. Preaching. It's called foolishness. The preacher. Weak, contemptible. A.K.A. foolish. This is Paul's description of everything you were called to. Can you think of a better messenger outside of Jesus than Paul the apostle? What's his testimony of being trained in the school of the prophet? You're looking at it. He says... I've resolved to share nothing outside of this to you, and that is Jesus and him crucified. And what is he saying? Well, that's a stumbling block and foolishness. He knows it. He knows what he's giving. He knows it comes across as foolishness. And if any of you have ever heard the message, the song of the idiot, it comes from the word idiotes. Paul says that he understands that he is heard as an idiotes. He appears to be an idiot. This is a learned man, by the way. Paul, the apostle, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, 
I mean, this guy had it together. The world esteemed him, and then he became cockeyed, weird. Got some buck teeth. What happened to your teeth, Paul? You need some braces. What's going on with you? His hair, suddenly that calic is a Frank, get some gel. You know, plaster it down. What's going on with you? And he keeps getting worse and worse. He's becoming more like Christ. And guess what? Christ looks buck-toothed to this world. We as Christians need to accept it. You need to go through the school of the prophet and learn these things. For his letters say they, speaking of Paul, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Number five, this is rather important. The messenger must know the voice of God. You know, there's a lot of voices that we can hear in our life. And sometimes we have a very difficult time discerning friend from foe. We have a very difficult time discerning what the flesh is speaking to us, self, the enemy, Satan, God, Who's talking? You must know the voice of God. You can discern the difference between your mom's voice and your brother's voice. Why in the world do we have such a difficult time discerning God's voice? You go through the school of the prophet, one of the number one things you must learn is to recognize God's voice. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech. As the noise of a host, when they stood and they let down their wings, and the sound of the cherubim's wings was heard even to the outer court as the voice of the Almighty God when he speaks. Here's what's interesting about this. First of all, you're getting a description of the voice of God, which I don't want to give too much away. But the voice of God is understood by the prophet. Ezekiel, when he hears the wings of the cherubim, says, you know what that's like? It's like the voice of God. Most of you, if you heard the wings of the cherubim, you would have no idea what it sounds like. Because you don't know the voice of God. Ezekiel did. So Ezekiel hears the sounds of the rushing of wings of the cherubim. And he says, you know what that's like? That's like the voice of speech, like the voice of the Almighty. He knew the voice. The golden calf God. The redefinition of God in order to make him palatable to our tastes. What we're about to go through is the voice of God. I'm going to unveil what the word of God says itself about God's voice. Which is a strange thing. Most of us are like, huh, it actually describes it? It does, in great detail, over and over again. You know that the nature of God is defined over and over and over again throughout the scriptures? And do you know that in our modern day, we have literally hacked it to pieces, taken out the parts we want, and then formed it into a different God? We don't want God to be this! We need him to be, well, I like kindness, that's, that's good. I like mercy, I like patience, that's good. Long-suffering, that's sort of the same thing. Let's, let's stick that in together. Love, of course. Get, get over here, love. All right, all right now. Anything else that we need? Gentleness? Okay, gentleness, let's get that in, and then let's forge it into a golden calf, God. Is it all true? Sure. He is those things. But did you know that we're leaving some things out, and as a result, we're ending up creating a God of our own making? A God that is made by human hands and human opinion and human sensibility and not, it's not God. God is not made. God is, I am that I am, says God. We don't define him. He defines himself. We submit to him. We bow down before him. He knows who he is. Let's let him define himself. And the same thing we do with the voice of God. We take the voice of the flesh and we call it the voice of God. One of the reasons you don't hear Eric say things like, and God spoke to me. It's not that I've never said it, because God has spoken to me. But you know what? I'm very watchful over those words, because I've seen a whole generation use that very lightly, to the point where they're taking things that aren't God at all, and they're attributing 
God to them, saying, quote, unquote, God Almighty. You know how dangerous that is? It's a golden calf God. That's not God. That's you. That's you, your sensibilities, the way you want things to be. God makes it clear in his word, and we can test every word against the scriptures. The voice. Now, there's a, this is sort of a, it's a deeper meaning to this subheading, uh, and that is that there's a new Bible that was just released by the emergent church, and it's called The Voice. And it is making God palatable. Making God artsy. Making God hip. My subtitle, The Voice. It's anything but socially sensitive. You want the real voice? Let the voice speak. Don't edit it. Who are they to edit the word of God? To try and change his voice? Get your grubby paws off the scriptures. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, here's what I'm going to do with this. this is, I'm going to take this concept that God is unchanging. Okay, Jesus Christ, who is the word, who is the voice of God. And I'm going to do this. The voice of Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm, going to, I'm making a point saying, he is unchanging. Will you walk with me in, in agreeing that his voice is then unchanging? His voice doesn't just unplug from certain attributes and get all rude and mean. He is who he is. There's no lie in him. He is perfect in all his ways. He is above reproach. So whatever he does, he will be held guiltless in the end. He is just. And even though we can look back and critique, oh, I can't believe he slaughtered all those Canaanite nations. God's just. And whether or not your sensibilities fit in with that, we don't need to make excuses for God. I'm not here on earth to excuse God. He's just. I'm here to tell you he's just. You're the one with a misconception. You must be corrected to Jesus Christ. His voice does not alter. From generation to generation, you know, his word is the same. And the voice of his word does not alter. His voice, he didn't get all weak in our generation, get sort of a high-pitched voice. Hi, guys. Okay, he didn't. Yet that's what is being told us. We already read this. In the beginning was the word. This is the scripture I was expecting right here. Behold, I send an angel before thee. This is an exodus, okay? This is in the wilderness. The Israelites, Moses is literally being told to tell the Israelites, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not. You know who that angel is? That's Jesus. I know it sounds strange, but Jesus was in the wilderness with the Israelites. Just, just study it. It's extraordinary. Write that down. Exodus 23, 20. Study it. It's extraordinary. Every translator knows that they capitalize the word angel. It's a messenger. You know that Jesus is called the messenger of the covenant. He is the one that keeps us in the way. He is the way. The voice of Jehovah. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, when God speaks, he speaks out of things like whirlwinds. When you go into the Old Testament, you start to shudder. Your knees start to buckle. We don't like some of those passages because, and we always like to say, well, God, he's a nice God now. Thanks be to God for Jesus. Uh, you know, the New Testament, arguably, if you were to stare at it this way, 
would cause you to, your knees to buckle even more than the Old Testament? I don't know who gets these notions that God has been redefined or God upgraded himself to be a nicer unit when he became, uh, you know, Jesus and he was born in the flesh. Jesus has always been there. The voice of God is Jesus. He is the word of God. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. So what was this voice that spoke out of the whirlwind? Oh boy, there was a passage in Job, this whole huge chunk of Job I just wanted to read. But I knew that the students had just read it on uh, Friday. Remember that in Betrayed with a Kiss? You guys had just gone through that on Friday. So I left it out. But it's good. Trust me. What is this voice like? Hear attentively the noise of his voice and the sound that goes out of his mouth. He directs it unto the whole heaven and is lightning unto the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars. He thunders with the voice of his excellency and he will not stay them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. Great things does he, which we cannot comprehend. Hast thou an arm like God? Listen to this. Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? No. And the Lord God and the and the Lord shall cause his glorious voice to be heard, and shall show the lightning down of his arm, the lighting down of his arm, with the indignation of his anger, and with the flame of a devouring fire, with scattering and tempest and hailstones. The description of God's voice. This is the description we heard in Ezekiel about the cherubim's wings. Okay? There's actually descriptions of his voice, and this is one of them. Whereas I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters. One of the things you'll notice when God's voice is described, it seems to have a Niagara Falls type of sound to it. And it's a loud, boisterous, thick, earth-shaking sound. That's one of the descriptions, okay? As the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech. So it still has the quality of speech. But whatever is the quality of God's voice, it literally causes the earth to tremble. And the sound of the cherubim's wings was heard even to the outer courts as the voice of the Almighty God when he speaks. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. Now remember, you're opening up the temple, which is the very dwelling place of God. You are dealing with where the oracle of God is. This is where the voice of God lives. It's called the oracle, and it's right above the ark of testament. So if a king was sitting on his throne, which is what the mercy seat is, the ark of covenant is a throne then it's right where the mouth would be. And now the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. That's the throne. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Close up that temple! Uh, What's inside your temple? Same thing? Don't you know that you're the temple of God? What dwells inside of you? You know what's supposed to dwell inside of you? The voice of God. Now I know we could say the presence of God, but I'm getting more specific. The presence of God is where the voice of God is. It's the word of God. The word dwells in you richly. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? And behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of great thunder. 
And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. That's Harper's uh, theme verse right there. And it's right after the voice of thunder. That's like Hudson and Harper right there. And his feet like undefined brass as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. The mega voice. The word in uh, the Greek is megos. It means great, violent, mighty, and strong. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a mega voice as of a trumpet. Whose voice was it? It was Jesus. Jesus speaking in the mega voice. I love that. Megos. We need to use that more often. We need a Megos voice. It's the voice of God. The voice of the Lord. You know how excited I am about Job chapter 29? It's like the manly stuff. Well, Psalm 29. I mean, I think God's into the 29s here. I know he wasn't the one that broke up the chapters and all this, but this is ordered. 29th Psalm is ordered by God. It's the 29th Psalm. The mega voice of almighty thunder is my subtitle for this. Psalm 29 is its theme is the voice of the Lord. So listen to what it says. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the hinds to calve and discovers the forest. In his temple does everyone speak of his glory. He makes the hinds to calve. Literally, this hind is pregnant. And then suddenly, God speaks. And the calf is sort of like, oh! Uh, and out comes a little baby calf. Now, here's where I want to transition into us, okay? It's one thing to understand the voice of the Lord. It's one thing to esteem it. It can be poetical. It's like, oh, that's powerful. But if this doesn't affect us as the church, what's the use of it? If it doesn't affect us as individual lives, what's the good of knowing the voice of God? It's like, well, he doesn't speak anymore like that. So therefore, we never need to worry about hearing it. Sounds like the Israelites. Don't let God speak to us. Moses, you speak to us. We will die if he speaks to us. In other words, they were scared to death of hearing the voice of God. This causes the earth to tremble. It causes the children of this earth to tremble. The voice of the church. I'm giving a subtitle to this. I'm going to call it the bursting wineskins. Now, if you go back uh, to the Gospels, you're going to know that Jesus gave this illustration of old wineskins and new. And to handle the new wine, we must become as new wineskins. And so we are to be holders of the very life of God. And that is, you know, and basically what we see even at Pentecost is they say it sounds like they are drunk with a new wine. They were. They were filled with a new wine. And guess what? They could not hold in this voice. What had come into them burst forth. Elihu of Barakel. This is the book of Job. Job has spoken. His three friends have spoken. Elihu is the young man in the midst. And he is hearing this. And he is doggedly determined to see his God get glory. But there's been error spoken. There's been lies floating through the air. And he's ready to burst. Boy, when I read about Elihu of Barakel, I feel like God has given me a template for what he's walked me through. I'm that young man. 
And I've just been in agony in certain situations. I've been in pastoral staff meetings where literally I feel like something's going to burst in my body. I am, I've gotten up. I mean, this is, I, I know etiquette, okay? But even in a pastoral staff meeting, I've gotten up, my legs on the chair, and I'm seated on the chair like this because I cannot sit still. And so I'm bouncing, and everyone's talking. I'm literally about to burst something. And so then I read Elihu of Barakel, and I say, I know that. I know that, but I didn't know what it was. Am I wrong? Is something wrong with me? Because why is everyone else sitting still and I can't live with this? Elihu of Barakel, listen to this. I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Church of Jesus Christ. That's the day of Pentecost. You are filled with new wine. And there is an utterance that must come forth. Do you know that? Do you know that utterance? This isn't a school for Eric. This is a school for all of us. There is something that is going to begin to form within you if you allow it. And it will feel like a wineskin without vent that is being shaken. And there must be a vent for it. That's young Christianity in a nutshell. God will allow that pressure to build even for years if necessary. Because he's training you. He's grooming you. It's the school of the prophet. The school of the prophet is what Elihu went through. A whole season of listening to this voice but not yet being freed by God to speak. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. I must speak. And then it comes out. And it comes out a little louder than the typical voice. Just like when you shake up a can of soda and you open it, it comes out a little more fiery and thunderously than it would if you didn't shake it. Jeremiah. Oh, my soul, my soul. I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. You're hearing something, and it's plaguing you. I know something. I must speak it, but I don't want to be the one. Could someone else go? Send someone else, God. You know, that was Jeremiah's entire plea throughout the whole book. God, no, not me. He hears the sound of the trumpet within. He hears the sound of war. He's hearing the voice of God. And it's compelling him, and literally he is bent to the point where that shove in the back, puts him before all of Israel. And he speaks it. And guess what? They didn't want to hear it. And he knew it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. He had the fury of the Lord within him. And he was weary of trying to hold it in. I can't hold it in anymore. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what they do to me. King, hear ye the word of the Lord. Oh, I feel so much better. (laughs) Jeremiah 20. Oh, Lord. This is still Jeremiah. Oh, Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. 
For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, will not make mention. I will not make mention of him. Boy, I've had moments in my soul. God, I can't do this anymore. God, you can't keep asking me. Get someone else too. May I at least have someone standing at my side when I'm doing it. Someone who can take half the hit. I don't want Leslie to get that hit. I want someone else. Give me a guy who can just, you know, maybe I can shove him in front of me every now and then. Let him take one of the bullets. Can't take all of them, can I? This is the feeling of those that go through the school of the prophet. And it's not just Eric that feels this. You will feel this too. God oftentimes keeps his prophets lonely because he knows he needs to spread the salt and the light everywhere. But there are seasons, like Ellerslie, where we get to come together in one salt shaker. Let's cherish these times. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Do you understand this? This is the school of the prophet. When you've gone through this, you read Jeremiah, you read Elihu, and you nod. When I wrote Bravehearted Gospel, I wasn't supposed to write Bravehearted Gospel. I was supposed to write a book called The Five Arts of Intimacy. The Five Arts of Intimacy, The Bravehearted Gospel. And I remember I sat down to write The Five Arts of Intimacy. Great book, if it ever gets written. Great book. <laughs> and I, I was exactly like this. I was compelled, and I knew the publishing industry wouldn't want it. And I came to Leslie after, I don't know, it was a day or two days of just staring at the, at the keyboard. All I had in my head was what needed to be said. And I said to Leslie, I go, I, I can't write this book. This is all that I'm thinking about. This is all I care about. And I told her the premise, and she already knew it. And she says, you need to write that. Listen to this. And when you write it, write it like a man. I have a great wife. <laughs> They're compelled. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Do you know the cost? you know that you'll be crucified? Do you know what will happen to you, Christian? Do you realize the same thing that happened to all the apostles that followed Jesus? Martyrdom will happen to you. And you could say, well, John wasn't actually killed. Yeah, he was thrown into a vat of boiling water. He just happened to be pulled out. But boiling water, boiling oil, even worse. He was pulled out unscathed. They didn't know what to do with him. They couldn't kill him, so they exiled him to the island of Patmos. He lived the life of a martyr. We cannot but speak. For though I preach the gospel, says Paul, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. This is Jeremiah speaking, but it's Paul speaking. I have necessity laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. You have to. Now, you could look at that as, well, what a miserable life these Christians have. I already told you in the very beginning. I'm compelled in the same way. I understand this, and yet I'm the happiest of men. Though to the world's eyes, I would be the most miserable. In their perspective, I must be the most miserable. Oh, I'd hate to be that guy. You know how many people have said that to me? I'd hate to be you. Well, you obviously haven't walked in my shoes. I love being me. I do. Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He was compelled by the Spirit. Same language for Jeremiah. Same language for Elihu of Barakel. 
the voice of the church. Remember the voice of, of God? The voice of, uh, of Jesus is a voice of a lion. It's a voice of thunder. It's a voice of many waters. Those are the descriptions we've gotten. What's the voice of the church? Are we supposed to be a different voice? Are we supposed to take the voice of God? Oh, and we'll translate that for you. They won't understand that. And so we give a mealy-mouthed voice. Is that, is that what it is? Listen to this. In Revelation, the church is speaking. I, I love this. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. as the voice of many waters. And as the voice of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. You know that the church is described as having the same voice as God. Hmm. Let's get it right. Let's have the voice of God. We hear the voice of God. We see the voice of God. We read the voice of God. Then we are filled with the voice of God. And then we are compelled to speak. And when it comes out, I just want you to know from personal experience, you don't give a care, a wit, a hoot what anyone thinks. Because you already dealt with that before you got up to speak it. You have to reckon the fact that they may kill you. You have to know what you're getting into. When you come out of the school of the prophets, I don't know if you ever come out of the school. But if, you, if there was a graduation, you're graduating and basically they're giving you a crown of thorns. And say, wear it proudly. It's not a crown of gold. This world mocks you. Get used to the spittle on your face, Eric. Get used to the fact that they will throw the smelliest of objects at you. Delight. Cherish it because you're a representative of the Almighty. And he made him, before I go into this, this is Joseph. Joseph is the second in command in Egypt, which is very symbolic of Jesus. He comes to this world. He is, all things are under his feet, but the Father is above him. And he had made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him. So there's something that is crying before him. Messengers that are sent before him. What do they cry? Bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. The world. All things under the second born's feet. The last Adam has come. And all things are under his feet. But there are messengers that are sent before him. Bow the knee. Bow the knee. The king comes. Does that ring any bells for you? Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Does that ring a bell for you? See, all the knees are going to bow to this one that is coming. This king is coming. And when he, and he, but the interesting thing, the Jews didn't understand this, he's coming twice. The first time he came, I don't know if I have it in here. It might. But the first time he came, there was a voice that preceded him. There's a voice that precedes the voice. And the voice that precedes still is the voice of the voice. But he's not the voice. He's the messenger of the voice. His name was John the Baptist. The voice of the church. The forerunner of the lion. Jesus came as a lamb. The Jews weren't expecting that. They were expecting the lion. He came as a lamb. They had no idea what they were looking at. They were offended by him. He came as a lamb. However, we know the second return is the return of a lion. The forerunner of the lion, the position of the church. In those days came John, 
the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, which we just read. Saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The king is coming. Bend the knee. That's exactly what John the Baptist was. He's known as a friend of the bridegroom, which is the picture of the church of Jesus Christ. We are the friend of the bridegroom. We are the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way. The king cometh. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins and his meat was locust and wild honey. Welcome to the church of Jesus Christ. I'd like to hand you your leathern girdle. Uh, We have some locust and wild honey in the cafeteria for you at lunch. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom ye shall seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. The voice crying, the unctionized preacher, the return of the weeping prophet. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. I am not proposing to you that God only speaks with a loud roar. God speaks all the attributes of his nature. And just as a father, I have a loud roar. There's a commanding presence in my home. It's not a rude, it's, it's not a mean voice. But it's an authoritative voice. And when I speak, my children know it. However, that isn't the only voice I utilize. There's a voice of authority and there's a voice of fatherly kinship and affection. And so, in the revelation of God's voice in and through the church, we have the voice crying. That's the voice of the forerunner. It's a voice that cries. Now, the word crying in that context is shouting or bellowing out. It's a loud voice. You know, John had a loud voice. He was crying in the wilderness. Repent! None of us want to be that guy. I want you to realize, Jeremiah is an incredible picture of what I feel we are as the forerunner. He's the weeping prophet. He's the one that cares so deeply. For the lost souls to find their king. He doesn't just shout at them to bend their knee. He weeps that they would bow their knee. And he weeps when he sees that they don't bow their knee. Please. Please bow your knee. The king is coming. I don't want you to miss him. Because if he comes and you are in rebellion. It will be too late. Please bend the knee now. Because he will make you bend the knee soon. You will bend your knee. You can do it of your own volition in worship to him now, or he will make you bend it soon. The return of the weeping prophet. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and let your pruning hooks into spears. And your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. There's... We get a lot of emails. Poor Sandy gets most of them. I don't know. Maybe some of the other staff gets them too. Leslie gets a lot of comments. Most people don't talk to me about my voice. Uh, But I'm often told that I would be a lot more effective if I didn't speak the way I did. And I just want everyone to know here 
that I understand exactly what that means. And I know full well what they're saying. I could be a lot more effective. You know that my publishing career could flourish if I didn't keep shooting it in the foot? I've technically destroyed my ability to speak in a mainstream way. Radio shows don't know what to do with me. Book publishers have no clue how to handle me. I'm not asking them to change to fit me. If they can't handle me, I'm not going to cause them to stumble over me. I know what I represent, and I also know what you are called to. I understand what this means. And I realize that I may not be the most popular, and I realize that people may get mad at me. I had this one guy come up to me at a conference and say, you know, when I first heard you, I didn't like you at all. But I've gone to every one of your sessions. There's like nine or ten of them. He says, you're growing on me. (laughs) Pat him on the shoulder. I go, it's great to hear. It's great to hear. I don't know why you guys continue to sit here week after week. There's something in us here where we don't mind that voice. We just don't. Now there's times where it's uncomfortable. It's like, yeah. But you know what? We esteem truth. And that's why I really like being here with you guys. Because that voice is free to express itself. That voice is free to roar if necessary. If you hang around me, you'll notice I don't just always talk with a loud voice. I did have Hudson last night. We were down in the office and he heard. He says, were you down in the office? And I said, yes. And he goes, were you preaching down there? I go, I don't think so. He said, were you playing one of your sermons? Because I heard you. You were talking really loud about something. Well, maybe I do talk loud more often than I thought. But uh, so here I am saying that. But I don't. I don't just ask people around me. Talk in a normal voice, too. I can even talk soft. I've done it. (laughs) We received a request uh, just a couple days ago, which is very humorous in light of this message. Okay? And I thought it was so utterly encouraging, since it is the first of its kind to ever come to Ellerslie. I figured I would put it up here. I'm just taking a little clip out of it. I pray his voice becomes louder. So, in honor of that request, God has heard your prayer! Over the years... I would like, this is going to be, I, I have nixed the idea of what we're going to do next multiple times. I mean, there were multiple times, even this morning, where I was halfway through this, working on this little short video. It's not really a video. You'll see what it is. And I was just like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And I started to move away, but the audio track was still playing. And I started crying. It was so intimately moving to me. See, what you're about to hear was not put together for you. It was, well, I shouldn't say it that way. My original motivation was this. I I was talking to someone, this is about a year ago, and they were talking about how loud I am. And there was an opportunity in the moment to clarify that, you know, that I haven't always spoken like that. You know, I've been speaking for close to 17 years in front of audiences, and I haven't always sounded like I sound now. I know what I sound like, and I know that it's different than I used to be. I don't make excuses for it. I sometimes prep an audience to say, okay, what you're about to hear might be a little unusual to you, but just know I'm not mad at you. (laughs) And 
So I decided I was going to get some old audio clips and begin to put them together so that people could hear what I used to sound like. And then I was going to basically do an overview to see the change over the years. That's what this is. It's called Over the Years. And it was meant to be funny. That, so both the, me, the fact that I was going to study the voice of God, that was funny. And then this was meant to be funny. This is anything but funny. That's, it, it will be funny. At first, when you hear me talking, you'll go, what a weakling. <laughs> and it's not that what I say isn't true. It's just that you're going to see that Eric was lacking something. You're going to say, what happened to him? Well, that was way back then. And so now I have thousands of hours of audio recording, okay? How in the world do I collect this? So literally what I did, I prayed. And I said, God, I, it's like a needle in a haystack. How do I get moments that will show these things? And I can't explain how this happened, but in a, literally a couple hour period, I randomly was selecting certain messages over this range of time. And I would just open up the audio file, and I would listen to a clip. I would take it out, stick it in. Open up another one, take it out, stick it in. And suddenly, I realized that this project was something very different than what I originally intended it to be. It was like God was speaking to me in and through this project. And he was showing me all that he's deposited in me over the years. And it's like, this is a summary of everything we teach at Ellerslie. There's a couple themes that I would still want to put in, but I tell you what, it is deeply moving to me. When I hear this, it's like it stirs me at the depths of my soul. So I put this together in a matter of a couple hours. I don't know, it was a Sunday afternoon once. And my goal originally was to just show the humor of how different my voice is from when it was then and to show what happened because something happened along the way. And you'll hear about it in here. I actually... One of the clips I took out was literally a statement about what happened to change my voice. How did I find that? I literally just lifted it out. Everything in here is lifted out. And there's certain things in here that you would say, what does that have to do with his voice? I want you to realize everything to me is like a tapestry of something here. It finishes with the Irish elk. The return of the Irish elk. That's the final clip. It's... Deeply stirring and moving. It's like, this is, this is that voice. This is the voice that all of us share. This is the voice that's speaking inside of us. And so even though I've waffled, and if I should share this with you, I want to share it with you. Here's what I want us to do. I want you to allow the voice of God to speak to you. And I want you to become acquainted with the voice of God at a deeper level today. And I want you to accept the invitation to the school of the prophet. If I could... Ask anything of your soul. It's be willing to be made willing. Be willing to don the leather girdle. It'll look different on all of us, praise God. But I want us to be willing. That's the first step. It's not that you have to get up and bark something that's politically incorrect just today after church. Just saying things that are politically incorrect isn't how God works. He says things that need to be said. He said, says things that are right to be said in the moment. He's God. And if you give him your lips, if you give him your heart, he will pour in his new wine. And he might remove the vent for a season and create a pressure chamber within. And he's preparing you. Are you willing to speak? I don't want to speak, but I have to speak. I know. I shook you up for a reason. Let him do what he must do, okay? But at the close, I would like for you to do what you must to focus on God and to deal with God, okay?
Leslie and I are pleased and excited to present to you tonight a message that we have entitled, Preparing for an Amazing Love Story. It's important that I start out by really putting a little emphasis on one key word here, and that is preparing. You see, Leslie and I believe that a beautiful, romantic, successful love story is not something that you just stumble across in life, but it's something that you prepare for long before you ever discover. Okay, the first point of the mentality is to choose to be a pioneer rather than a settler. It's, it's to choose to live. Pioneers, it's a harder life. Settlers are the easy life. Pioneers are the ones that make the maps. They're the ones that take the risk. They're the ones that go where no one else has gone. If it's pioneering in relationships, it's making decisions that the culture around you doesn't understand. Many Christians won't even agree with. It's like, that's extreme. You're pioneering. Pioneers are always, quote-unquote, extreme. They're always doing something that makes everyone else feel uncomfortable because they say, what are you saying, that I should do that too? No, actually, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I'm doing it, that you could make any decision you want. I'm responsible for me. You could be inspired or be mad at it, I guess. The point is, it's the ones who choose to be pioneers that will truly change the world. Atleo Stefano. There's a word in 2 Timothy which means contending for the crown. It's a term used in the Olympics. It's a Greek word, Greek Olympics, right? It's the athlete. The athlete who contends. Athleo is to contend, to compete, to go after. Stefano, for the wreath, the crown, the glory, the achievement, the victory. Athleo Stefano. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What have we been saying? Here's Paul speaking to Timothy. And even in the context, he's saying, everyone has turned away from me. All Asia, they turned away from me. God bless Onesiphorus because he didn't. But they all turned away. Do you realize, Timothy, that we're in a battle? Right before that, he's saying... Stir up the gift that is in you because you're going to need it. He says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. It's a power of love and a sound mind. He's given us what we need for this battle, Timothy. They've all left me. So, you want to know what I'm going to tell you, Timothy? My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Don't be a weakling. Be strong. Because that time is coming where you will need all that strength. Be strong in that grace. It's available to you. Learn it now. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This isn't a metaphor. This is real. You might not think that you want to be in the military. You are. And if you choose not to be in God's military, you choose to just be a common man in the kingdom, you're going to die. If you're not armed, if you don't have the artillery that God has given you, if you don't go into that war chest in heaven and take it, if you don't clothe yourself in the shield, in the breastplate, in the helmet, shod your feet, take up the sword, you will die. You know what Leslie prayed for me? This is two and a half years ago. It's one of the defining moments of my life. Leslie prayed this prayer. 
And I had no preparation for this prayer. We're just in the middle of a prayer. Leslie stops, and she puts her hand on me, and she says, cause Eric to pray like a man. My prayers were always like, dear God, I love you. Dear God, do this in our family. Protect our family. You know, we want that. Suddenly, I, it literally it was a growl. It was a strength. It was a fire within me. We have a passion, and we know we can't settle here. There is an endless frontier. There is more to be had. And yes, we're content with Jesus Christ and what we have now. But there is some holy discontent that drives us forward and we want more. We can't just settle for our life being satiated, our life being made whole. There is a dying world out there that needs to hear about Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ in our generation is crumbling. We can't just be satisfied with knowing for ourselves the glory of God. We must take it outward and we must go out and be rescuers. Because we must realize that if we take one step of obedience and everyone around us is still way back there. I mean, come on, no one else has taken that step. We are still one step into an endless frontier. And God is saying to us, never pitch your tent. There is more to be discovered. Onward, pull up the tent stakes, onward. The church of Jesus Christ is stagnated in the wilderness. We're staring into the promised land, esteeming it, saying, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, praise God for lands flowing with milk and honey. Blessed be God. Go in and take it. Dare to ask for it. Dare to see it in your life realized. We are being knit together to showcase a reality. How do we showcase this reality? We each have a responsibility before God today. And that is we yield to the gospel. I know you've been dealing with God for so many weeks and months. And I want you to keep pressing in. There is no time to stick your tent stakes in the ground and call it quits. Oh, I think I've, I've made it. I think this is far enough. If any of you are even feeling the hint of it, the twinge of it, that's the big burly guy known as the flesh. Just settle down. You've invited him in. Don't listen to him. He might be knocking on the window, whispering through. I think you're fine now. I think you've done all you needed to do. Turn off the presses. You don't need to publish any more about Jesus Christ with your life. No more fruit is necessary. You've sort of arrived. We each are responsible to make sure that this dwelling place, this body, this soma, is owned, operated, purified by Jesus Christ. Our job is to take our commands and our daily job description from our director, from our commander, from our captain. And we allow him to be firmly and squarely placed within the throne of our lives in our director's chair. We allow his face to be the one that when anyone encounters our life and enters into our life, they see him instead of us. This has nothing to do with us anymore. It has to do with him. He set us free from having to have our picture on the wall. So if you find yourself arguing with the fact that you want the glory and you want the praise, you still need Christianity. We go into this world as little lambs with the faces of lions because the living God Almighty, the consuming, almighty, sovereign God dwells within his children. And as we stand and the wolf pack surrounds us, we stand in the authority in the name of Jesus and we will not back down. 
Because we do not head off to war to lose. We head off to war to win. Our God mocks all the powers of earth and hell through fluffy little lambs because his lambs beat the wolf packs. That's the gospel. The gospel trounces upon all the powers of earth and hell and demonstrates to the universe the manifold wisdom of God that he is in control. And even though we look weak, and even though physically and naturally we are weak, spiritually greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. That is good news. And it is a lot better than what's being dealt out today in the church. We need to rise up, proclaim the gospel, and say, I'm unashamed of it. I love that picture, B. I want you to keep drawing pictures like that. Whoa. What is this, B? Evil ballot bowing down to the idol in Chadwick, Meshach, and Abednego, not... So we have an idol there. It sort of looks like Goliath, you know, but it's an idol and it's big. So it's like a big meanie thing. And then we have some people that are bowing down. Uh, and, but look at those three. You know that if they don't bow down, they'll be, what's going to happen to them? They're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. Whoa. Well, let's think about this. You could either bow down and say to something that isn't God, you are my God which isn't the best idea, right? We, most of us as Christians know that. God is our God and we only bow down to him. However, if you don't bow down, you're going to be thrown in to a furnace that is full of fire. Not too comfortable there. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do in that situation, buddy? I'm going to bow down to God. You're only going to bow down to God. That's the number one thing I want in your life is Jesus Christ, everything to you, that you will not bow down to anything with him, even if it means a fiery furnace. Where's Hudson? Is he here? Hudson, did you want to come up and help me real quick? Hudson knows about the Irish elk. Remember we were learning about uh, animals that went extinct? What was the thing that we were looking at this week? elk we looked at. Remember some of the other animals that went extinct? The sea cow. The sea cow. Hudson's really excited about the sea cow. How many bones does the sea cow have in it? Two. Two. He's been asking me ever since why the sea cow only has two bones. And Daddy doesn't quite know the answer to that one. Uh, can you think of any of the other animals that went extinct? The cave lion. The cave lion. Any others? Siberian tiger. The Siberian tiger. Any others? Dodo bird. <laughs> the, the dodo bird. Uh, any others? <laughs> Remember the one that was half zebra, half horse? Yeah. What's that one called? Quagga. 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 Good job, buddy. And you were sad that all these animals went extinct, weren't you? Yeah. You were, you were crying about it. You were really sad that they went extinct. He's also really concerned about the endangered species. Uh, and so he wanted to see all the endangered species lists and go through them. What's your favorite endangered species? Seal. The seal. Why? Because it's cute. Because it's cute. Yeah, that's definitely, they know how to hold our heart. Okay, you can go back to your seat. Thanks, buddy. One of the things that has been stirred in me as when I've been studying this with Hudson 
It's amazing the interests that my kids have have a tendency to be something God wants to speak to me about. And most of us probably don't spend a lot of emotional energy dealing with the fact that Tyrannosaurus Rex is no longer on planet Earth. It's like, oh, and then we weep over it and it's, and it's a serious thing. It's interesting because Hudson has been greatly burdened by the fact that he will never get a chance to see these animals. And he's, you know, he's been praying for dinosaurs to return and he's, uh, he really wants to see these animals. And then he's also deeply concerned over the endangered species list. You know, I, to be honest, I don't spend a lot of emotional energy in that direction. But Hudson is very concerned because other people may not know that if they kill that last elephant, he'll never get a chance to meet it. Okay, so it's an interesting emotion that I'm noticing in him. And I'm recognizing something, and that is this. The godly man is ceasing. Those faithful few in this generation that have this boldness and this majesty, this brawny gospel presence, they're endangered, if not extinct. In other words, if I were to ask you, have you seen such a man in this generation, such a woman in this generation, that you would say, they have the full package. They are living it before their generation in every regard. And we can behold them and say, that's what it looks like. And every single one of us can point at it and say, do you see that? That's what I'm talking about. That's what it's referring to in scripture right there. That they have victory over sin. That they walk with a triumphant gait. That they are marked by peace, joy, and love in every word, action, and deed. That they, they have this victory deep within them and they're immovable no matter what comes against them whether it's threats whether it's trials they rejoice in them this version of christianity which i would contend is christianity it's not just a version it is the real thing is if not extinct it is endangered but none of here hudson is crying over the potential loss of a seal and he cares deeply for the seal. Will we sigh and cry over the fact that true Christianity is nearly lost in our generation? And that most of us in here who esteem it at the highest level still have never witnessed it with our own eyes. You know what most of Ellerslie is? There's a whole bunch of young men and women of God who are saying, even though we haven't seen it, we believe. And we're willing to fight to see it return full force in us. But we haven't beheld it. We've read it. We've read the stories of Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael and C.T. Studd. We've read the stories of A.W. Tozier. We've read the stories of George Mueller. We've read the stories of Gladys Aylward. We've seen men and women do it in the past. But where is it today? Because what we need is not a story from the past. What we need are real life flesh and blood Christians that are breathing on planet earth in this generation. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. 
Please, feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.